Hello, and welcome to The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Brock Briggs, and today I'm speaking with Will Buck Bullyard. Will is the author of Soberman's Thoughts and co-founder of Dirtbag Magazine. We start the conversation off with what he's most proud of in life and go on to explore both his writing and writing process, why the world doesn't need more war poetry books, and how to lead junior troops into gunfights and being able to talk about poetry with them and much more. This conversation is extremely raw and in your face, just the way we like it here. Buck isn't afraid to tell it like it is, and I've learned a lot from reading his work and getting to know him over the past few weeks. I respect his pursuit of the craft of writing and lack of concern for others' approval. Please enjoy this conversation with Buck. One of the first things that I wanted to ask you, because I think it really gets at the heart of what's important to you, is what is something that you're the most proud of, you think, in your life? Hmm. Honestly, it's going to sound like super stereotypical, but uh, I'm not, I'm probably the most proud of the book I just recently finished, uh, Demons of the Taillights, which will be out this year. Uh, because I did a very different approach with that one than I did my other books. Um, like my military accomplishments are just my military accomplishments. Like it's just badges and schools and stuff like that. It doesn't really mean too much of a shit to me. Um, it was just a job, but like with writing my second book, I really, I felt like I became extremely disciplined as a writer and I really grew as a writer from writing my first book, Silverman's Thoughts. And Silverman's Thoughts was mostly... It's weird because it's more of like a journal essentially that I wrote and like my I was it was very alcohol fueled. I don't remember much of writing that book. Uh and I feel like it kind of messed with my writing a lot. And with my next one, I knew I wanted to go into it uh sober. I didn't want to write drunk anymore. So and it's funny because I kind of labeled I kind of designed this book to look like a journal, but it's not. It's like a it's almost like a fictional poetry book which is the way I kind of wanted to go with it. And I, once I finished it, it was for the first time in my whole life, I was actually extremely proud of uh, my writing. And I knew it was good. And I knew it was worth something. Because a lot of writers you'll talk to, they hate their work. But a lot of guys do. Uh, just because it's super weird when your book first comes out, people receive it, and you get reviews, and one person likes it, another person doesn't like it. And it just kind of messes with the whole thing. But with this one, especially working with Keith and Tyler, like you have a good window from when you finish your book, your book until it comes out. And with this one, I have, I've had enough time. I finished it last May, did some edits, did some tweaking, submitted it in December. And now we're doing like cover design and stuff like that. And uh, now I'm like looking back on it. I'm like, damn, I'm super proud of this book. So that's probably the thing I'm most proud of. And then my next book will probably be the next one. So what do you think about this book makes you more proud of it than the first one? Does it have to do with the stimulation or maybe the fuel that you use to kind of like power the first book? Is it just like getting the first one out of the way? Uh, you've talked in a couple of interviews about how, and kind of my perception of what your first book was, it seemed like a very cathartic type process. And you've said that you can now feel like you can write other things now that you kind of like got that internal processing out of the way. Do you think that that, does that resonate? Does that sound accurate? Yeah, I mean, so with, I think the biggest difference uh, between the second one and the first one is uh, with the first one, I didn't plan on writing a book. I didn't want to be a professional writer. I just wrote to just make myself feel better. It was more therapeutic, and I had no real design to Soberman's Thoughts. Soberman's Thoughts was just whatever I had was there on the paper. You know, it was chronological, in the, and that's how I ordered the poems. I still had some thought behind it, but it wasn't thought and planned out and with demons of the taillights it all stemmed from like a certain a small period of my life written over a year and i was like is this going to be uh non-fiction is it going to be like a it's like a project piece and eventually what i came down with after a lot of thinking was that um i just wanted it to be a fictional poetry journal essentially it's going to be it's kind of like a song lyrics journal it's kind of like a you know, just a story told behind it. There's some fiction pieces in there. There's some nonfiction pieces. And like, 
I just like the whole feel of it all because it's where I felt like I truly was a writer for the first time in my life. The first time anybody can write a single book. Anyone can do it. It's not hard, especially a poetry book. A poetry book is the easiest thing in the world to create. Um, Fiction is a lot harder. Storytelling is a lot harder. So if you can kind of find a happy medium between that, and I say it, I've said it before, I feel like it's the natural progression of writing, is that like everybody starts out writing poetry. They want to be a professional writer. And then you kind of move into uh, articles. You know, everybody tries out their little toe in journalism. And I still like doing journalism. It's just not my focus, you know. Um, but then you move into short stories. And then you kindly, once you've mastered that craft where you feel like you kindly have developed your own way of storytelling, then you have enough to tackle a novel. And I feel like this was the pinnacle point in my career where I changed from just being someone who wrote a single book to being a professional writer. You got more than one act now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I love that. How do you think that the feedback that you got from that first book influenced or maybe didn't influence this next book? I think I cared more about the feedback with the first one because that was my uh, debut. You know, everybody cares about because like that's going to be what you're known for, especially because I was a nobody when I first came out. Keith and Tyler had no idea who I was. Nobody had no idea who I was. I was just a just a random dude on the internet, you know? <laughs> and then I really put it all out there with Soberman's thoughts. And then uh, now I'm, people know who I am a little bit. You know, I have a little bit of backing behind me. So I wanted this to be different because I didn't want to just be, I didn't want this to be Soberman's thoughts part two. And mm-hmm. I, when I got the reviews, the only reviews that ever bothered me were, you know, as a veteran, this is just drunk ramblings. Like that one pissed me off like a lot. <laughs> like, I was like, you didn't even care. You didn't really actually dive into the book. You just judged it because it wouldn't have skulls and nods on the front. So with this one, I went into there. I didn't write it for anybody else. And I didn't write the first one for anybody else, but I cared what people thought. And with this one, I know I do not give a rat's ass what people think about it. This could sell one single copy or... 5,000 copies and I wouldn't give a fuck just because it's just something I want to create. And I think it's something, I think it's something people want to join. If they don't, I don't care. So, What do you think it takes to get past that level of working on something and caring about the reception of it to not caring about it? Because that's, for anybody that's in any sort of creative endeavor, you feel that maybe even before you start, maybe it's after you start a little bit, you start to maybe get some negative feedback. How do you get over that hump and kind of just like brush that away so that you can keep focusing on your craft? I feel like that's the single thing that's going to decide if you're going to be a professional writer or not. Um, I know a lot of people who have written one book and then quit writing because it didn't get it didn't sell as many copies as they wanted. You have to go in with the attitude that like, okay, this one didn't sell as many copies as I wanted. I'm going to make sure the next one does. And then I think it just takes a little bit of personal growth. And honestly, the bad reviews help. I love a bad review because it makes me like self-reflect. Like maybe they're right. You know, maybe they're wrong. Like you kind of really, it, it made me sit and like think about it for the next day, the next couple of days. And I was finishing my second book at the time when I started to get some bad reviews. And then, uh, yeah, I just kind of, I think the bad reviews helped me more than a good review ever will. And I feel like a lot of people feel that way. It's kind of stereotypical, but like the hardest critiques ever to look at are in your fucking, in the mirror yourself and at your writing. And I was like, am I going to be known as just this drunk writer the rest of my life? Or am I actually going to be a writer? So I took a step back and I changed it. Do you think that there's a certain expectation of veteran or maybe service member writers you said something earlier about somebody thinking that there should have been like a skull on it what did you mean by that (laughs) i feel like with any i think it's more of an audience thing i feel like a lot of people uh with what how dead reckoning started back in the past it was mostly uh i think people expected war poetry war poetry is like a big easy term that everybody throws out all the time and you look at the greats like rudyard kipling you know, J.R.R. Tolkien did some like a little bit of war poetry. I feel like that was just something. I mean, David Rose, Leo Jenkins, that was like real war poetry. I feel like that's what the veteran culture kind of just looked at for every poetry book after that for Dead Reckoning Collective. And 
I just didn't never want to, I didn't want to go into that. I never wanted to tell my, I never even told people I was in the military for a long time. I, people just thought I was just some veteran and it turns out I'm still on active duty and have been on active duty ever since I wrote this book. So I think it's just, uh, I feel like people still want a war story because of where we're at in the global war on terror and the global war on terror was still going on when I finished my first book and people are always just going to want that little bit of story. It's action. It's kind of cool. It's an adventure, but I feel like we owe it to ourselves as veterans to just be a little better. Like if we are going to be the writers we want to be, and we want to be accepted and actually bridge the gap in the civilian culture and be not just a veteran writer, but just be a writer and be able to mesh in and build that, you know, say again, build that gap. You're just going to have to stop and maybe write something different. You can still tell a war story. I mean, Luke Ryan did it great uh, with his, novel you know he based his military experience on like his personal experience and wrote a great fiction novel which i think set him apart from every other writer that you know they had in dead reckonings you know i hate to say it but maybe still have do you think that continuing to do or like publish a lot of those like war poetry as you call them do you think that that perpetuates like a an image of veteran writers quote unquote and like oh, maybe 100%. gets in the way of it Oh, 100% it gets in the way of it because you sound like you're on the edge of a big tear here and I'm trying to just (laughs) pull back the layers. I'm like, he's going to let rip here in a second. Like, Uh, you know, I, it's hard for me to say, because I mean, I'm friends with so many people in the community, but, and people know they've met me and I'm pretty outspoken on how I feel about things, but I feel like we're just shooting ourselves in the foot every single fucking time. Another war poetry book comes fucking out. Has it done some great things? Yes, 100%. Are there some great war poetry books out there? 100%. But if you're ever proud of that, you're never going to grow as a writer. And you're not a writer. You're just a dude who wrote a poetry book, in my opinion. And that might be wrong. And I don't care. I love that unashamed feeling. Like that's, and, and as somebody in the space, like you've got the, got the juice to make a comment about it. Yeah. What do you think that they should be doing? Or like maybe you, is it just as much as kind of coming back for the second act? Like what Um, what you're doing here? Yeah, I think, well, I never went into this trying to tell war stories. And I, I do have a novel that I plan on writing about the war. Um, But I'm not going to publish that till like 10 years from now, just because one marketing, if you publish any war book right now, it's just going to be another war book. I mean, all the best Vietnam novels were ever written many years after the Vietnam War. And honestly, it'll probably be the last book I ever write just because it'll be my final piece that I can say. And then I can just walk away and, I don't know, fish and drink in the beach. I don't care. (laughs) But I feel like everybody just needs to maybe push their boundaries, test their limits a little bit. Because if you keep talking about something that, you know, caused you a significant incident in your life, whether it be war, whether it be, you know, your military service, whether it was getting out, your transition, I feel like if you keep harping on it, you could only beat a he- dead horse so many fucking times until people are like, yo, are we doing anything else? Or is this going to be the same thing forever? Like, I feel like we're at a really big turning point in the veteran writing community where we need to start making a change before we set the pattern and lay the bricks that are going to make us real writers or we're just going to be some other fucking veteran crying about the war. And it's not cool. So it's kind of lame, in my opinion. <laughs> so... You just mentioned, or we're talking about marketing, and I would imagine that kind of releasing a book into this environment, there's, like you said, lots of those, and there's a certain timeliness and kind of approach that you've obviously thought about. What has been your strategy, if you've had one, to the marketing of your books generally? So for my first book, uh, I didn't really have any plan of mark because I didn't know, you don't know what you're doing. Until you do it. Summerman Thoughts had no idea what I was doing. Keith and Tyler helped me out a, a lot. They showed me the ropes. They explained a lot of things to me. Um, there's a lot of things behind the scene that a lot of people don't see. And I feel like marketing is the is the lamest thing to do to be a writer. Because at the end of the day, I'm not a salesman. I'm a writer. So, but if you want to be successful in this industry and you want to keep doing it and making it for a living... Because uh, I'm never going to go back to work in a real job a day in my life. You have to learn marketing. So you kind of have to figure out, like, 
you have to figure out what your brand is. And I hate fucking saying that because that's so fucking lame. But you kind of have to figure out who you want to be as a writer because the writer is half the product to itself. Hemingway sold so many books because he was a very interesting person. His writing is okay. I mean, he's great, I will say, but there's a lot of books I read. I read A Movable Feast and I was like, this is absolute dog shit. This is a weird book. Like, you're talking about fucking F. Scott Fitzgerald's penis for like fucking half a chapter. That's kind of weird to me, man. <laughs> like, but A Farewell to Arms is a true, absolute masterpiece. It's my favorite Hemingway book. Do I feel like an old man in the sea should have won the Pulitzer Prize? Probably not. But at that point, he's like an old man. And, you know, it is a very great self-reflection. Um, and I feel like with Court McCarthy, he's successful because he's a really great writer. And I feel like he's also really successful because he's like this almost like folk being. You know, there's not a lot. You don't really know a whole lot about the guy. He goes spins and be super reclusive. Like you have to think about what people think of is a writer. But you also have to be yourself. If you're just trying to act like a writer to sell books, then you're fucking, you're dumb, one. You're the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. But just stay true to who you are and at the same time, just be a good guy and that'll help sell books a lot. And one thing I've always found with marketing is, you know, just really pitch your product and sell it. If you're able to sell your book, my philosophy is on it. If I could sell my book to an art student, and some liberal arts college, then I'm probably doing something pretty damn good. And I've sold more books on the street by just talking to people here and there than I have anywhere on social media. So it sounds like you've taken a really like one to one approach. And like it, you've even mentioned in another interview, like selling books at the bar or just by like striking <laughs> up conversations, talking to people. Has that been like the most effective thing for you that you found? Like being able to talk about it? I don't know if it's most effective, but it's more rewarding that way, I think. Uh, and we're at a day and age where you could buy a book anywhere in the world. I've sold a book in Zion National Park on a hike. I've sold a book in a bar in New York City. I've sold books set like on base, just walking around, you know, and I think it's just more rewarding. I mean, probably I don't I don't know how many books I've sold because I don't want to ask um, one because it might hurt my ego. And two, um, <laughs> and two, I just feel like if you're in it for the numbers game, like, I mean, you have to make a living no matter what, but if you're in it for the numbers, then you're never going to be a good writer. You might not, no one might buy your books until you're dead. So might as well enjoy the ride. Well, and I feel like if you can set out to write a book, maybe more so for a personal process and the education and experience that you'll get from writing the book. And if you sell products, uh, sell books, then, you know, that's just a cherry on top. Um, yeah. But it seems like there are, I know several people who have writing backgrounds and really shy away from like the, well, you know, no major publishers have reached out to me. It's like, well, they're not going to, you have to reach out to them. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and then that kind of bridges to my next question. I was curious if you had any thoughts about self-publishing versus going with a larger publisher any benefits or pros or cons to both? So I always tell people, I steer people away from self-publishing a lot. Just as I feel like, one, it validates you as a writer. If you get published by a publishing company, whether it be HarperCollins or Dead Reckoning Collective, you have somebody who said, your stuff is good, I want to sell it, and they're going to back you. And it's not just one person involved. It's you have the backing of a company now. So other people are helping sell your books as well. Self-publishing, you might make a little bit more dollars on the back end, but like, who cares, you know? So I feel like it, it val. And when I see a self-published book, I'm like, oh, okay. He thought it was good. If I see a book written by, and it has a publisher, whether it be an indie publisher or whatever, um, then it means that other people thought it was also good. At and least two people get, thought it was good. The writer at and at people. least one person. <laughs> yeah. So, and it's a big commitment for a publishing house to um, sign on an author because you're also, when you sign on an author, you're signing on his problems. If that motherfucker goes and commits a heinous crime. You thought that guy was a good guy and you <laughs> vouch for him, you know? So it's a lot of commitment on them and it's a hard job to do. I can never do it. I can never be a publisher because, you know, I, I don't think anybody would like the books I like, but you know, I am also, it's not my job. I'm a writer. It's completely different. And, uh, but I always, and you know, I'll always probably write for dead reckoning collective, no matter what, 
um, whether it just be poetry or whether it's all my books. Um, it's loyalty at that end. Like these guys went out on a limb for a nobody, took me on their wing and showed me how to be a writer and make a living doing it. So if I kind of was to turn my back on them, then I'm kind of a fucking cocksucker, you know? Like what kind of fucking asshole am I, you know? <laughs> like what, I want yeah. to be a sellout? Like, no, I, and I like being an indie fucking, working with an MD publishing company because it's a very personal relationship. I know dudes who work, who've worked for big publishing houses and they're like, I have no idea what's going on with my book. They change everything. It is what it is. And I have a lot of control over that stuff, but Douglas Hoover, he's self-published and uh, he's very successful in it, but he's also a lot more educated than I am on the process. And I think he would rather just work with himself and say, fuck you to everybody else. And I respect that. He's probably the best, He's probably the most successful self-published author I personally know. And he probably will continue to be. Do you think that there's anything to, if you choose to go the self-publishing route, a certain amount of authority, maybe that, whether that's real authority or not, uh, but authority that's given to you once you have a book, even if you do self-publish, like having a physical thing saying, hey, I wrote this? Uh, man... Honestly, I think publishing any book is great, but if you self-publish it, then any fucking idiot can sell. I could self-publish a single page today if I wanted to. Just go on Amazon, click it away, throw it in, boom, it's on Amazon. It'll be there in like two days. Not that hard. But are there some really great self-published books? I feel like you need to really take a step back and be like, Am I, is what I'm trying to say with this book actually fucking important? Eddie Black, another really close writer friend of mine, he, you know, publishes all his stuff through like Barnes and Noble, but he does a lot of his own stuff. He does, he reaches out, gets his cover designs, does all that. been like, at that point, like maybe big publishers aren't going to touch you for a while, you know? So it's better to at least have something in the cradle. And then you could market yourself to bigger publishing houses later down the road when you have like a novel to publish, you know, because let's be real, a big publishing house isn't going to touch you until you have a, a novel because that's what sells, you know. So for Eddie, me and him are both working on novels right now. I mean, him and both said all the time, we're like, yeah, now that we have like something that people were like, oh, you're an actual writer, you know, like now we'll probably look at you. Harper's Collins and all these other big publishing companies will like look at you a little better. So it's a it's a catch 22 and like. The sad thing is, is there's no quality control when you self-publish. You can be a fucking really bad writer and self-publish a book. I've seen a thousand of them. Where do you think that maybe aspiring authors or maybe new authors ought to draw the line between like getting something done actually versus like kicking the can down the road? Because that that's something that I've seen in the self-publishing world is it allows... I, I'm not educated enough to like probably have an intelligent conversation <laughs> about self-publishing versus going with a traditional I, publishing house. It's just my personal opinion. <laughs> but I also see self-publishing as a way for maybe if you have an idea for a book and you get rejected from everybody, maybe that is the way that people can actually kind of start doing something. Because th yeah. that's one of the a big frustration or maybe pet peeve of mine is people saying that they can't do something because of some other party that is completely unaffiliated. Yeah. You know, we're making I mean, excuses for self-publishing. I'm really not. I just, I just don't do it because I would rather have the backing of a publishing house with my stuff. Mm -hmm. And will I ever self-publish a book? Maybe I have like some scribbles or some short story collection that I might just throw out there in the wind. Cause I just, don't really care if it sells or not, but will I ever commit like a novel or like one of my big poetry books? Like my next poetry book's like 310 pages. Like I ain't going to self publish that. That's a lot of work I put in my short story collections, mostly something for fun. So I might just self publish that, but I'll probably just publish it through dead reckoning. Like I always do. So, but I feel like, I feel like you should always write. Like I hate when they're like, Oh, I don't have time to write. Like, yes, you do. You always have time to write. You could always go back and edit. A page you can't edit a blank page so if you're going to be a writer be a fucking writer don't sit around don't lollygag outline your story write down what you have to say 
and don't be as scared of the blank page. Writer's block is a fucking myth. I can sit down and write anything I ever, I can sit down and write anytime I want. The biggest problem is just me sitting down and doing it. Have you ever struggled with the identity of being a quote unquote writer? Like a time where you maybe felt like a little bit of that imposter syndrome or I'm not a writer until X thing happens. <laughs> yeah, I have a little bit, you know, I never really, I still don't even look at myself as a writer. I mean, it's on my Instagram because like, you know, it gets you more attention, I guess. Like I don't take social media very seriously. I, it's mostly just pictures of bullshit. Um, but you know, I didn't, I mean, I still don't think I'll ever be, I probably will never really truly look at myself as a writer until I have a novel published because I feel like that's like, that's the title fight of writing. You know, anyone can do poetry. Anyone can write some short stories, but if you sit down and write a novel, you're a fucking writer. I don't give, I don't even care if it's good or not. If you sit down and write like 200 pages of a continuous story, damn man, you're, you're an absolute fucking writer to me. And I haven't done that yet. And I feel like not until I finish my novel, will I really consider myself a real writer. But even then I'm still always going to be just buck. Like I'm not, I'm nobody special. Will I do this for the rest of my life? Yeah, probably. Uh, do I also have, you know, my military retirement is going to come in and help me keep the lights on? Yeah. So it's kind of a good buffer. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of crash and burn, but I'll never, I'll never be an insurance salesman. So. Is that kind of the trajectory that you see yourself taking? Uh, like trying to make that a sustainable career doing writing and, and just focusing on that once you get out? Yeah, that's kind of my whole plan. Um, because I'm coming, I didn't ever think I'd get out of the military, but the whole reason I am getting out of the military is one, because I have options. If I didn't have options, I could easily make first sergeant or sergeant major if I wanted to. Like, it wouldn't be hard. Like, it just, you just have to stay in. A great colonel once told me, he's like, there's no trick to getting promoted. You just got to stay in, man. Like, <laughs> but I just, I have more passion in writing and it, it makes me a better person, I believe. And I really just want to be a normal guy. And I don't want to do anything else. I think about writing all the time. I think about it nonstop. There's not a day or a moment goes by that I'm not thinking of the next line or the next part of a story that I'm trying to get out there. So I feel like if you're, once you takes over your life that much, you don't have any choice but to be a writer. I can't stop it. I've tried to stop writing, you know, it's never going to take. So at that point, you just kind of have to do it. You know, I don't think I could ever work a normal job. I don't like waking up early. I don't like, you know, being told what to do. And if I have the means and the funds to chase my dream, like might as well, like one line from a movie I always think about is a movie called up in the air with George Clooney. He's sitting there and firing this dude. Cause it's during a, like the recession time period where they're firing like everybody essentially. And he asked him, he's like, how much money did they give you to give up your dreams? He's like $29,000. He's like, you think it was worth it? He's like, absolutely not. And that's my biggest fear in the world is to give up on my dreams. I'd rather crash and burn and be a homeless bum than give up my dreams. I, I love that. And I really appreciate and respect how you've been able to find and like be called to this passion, but also still continue to pursue it while you're on active duty. Yeah. I have talked about this in so many episodes and beat this subject to death, but I have never felt like less creative than while I was in it because it feels like just there's this weight just kind of like pushing down on you all the time to kind of like prevent that by just like standardized processes and like there's just not free thinking that's promoted. Yeah. Have you struggled with that at all? I did when I was uh, a junior infantryman, you know, when I was like, you know, a private to like maybe... Probably was it until I was like a E5 until I really told anybody about it, you know, because I was a, I was an infantryman. We don't, we don't have feelings. We don't have, we don't like art, you know, <laughs> it wasn't until right. I met like another dude, one of the guys in my sniper section. He's like, oh yeah, I went to art school. And I was like, really? For what? He's like photography. I was like, do you do photography still? He's like, yeah, I do it all the time. And I was like, oh man, we can do that. You know, like <laughs> I, it was kind of like a dirty secret I kept, you know, like I was in like some really weird porn, but my porn was like, you know, fucking paintings and art and you know poetry and shit like that you know and it's not cool it's hard to be like this hardcore nco that has to like lead dudes in like gunfights and shit when you're like trying to talk to about poetry but once i got over that stigmatism i found that it made me a better leader once i could open up to guys 
And yeah, I think, I mean, every single one of my Joes bought my book and they all were like, damn, I didn't know you felt this way. I'm like, yeah, motherfucker, I'm suffering too. Like, fucking welcome to the club, you know? Like, I feel like everybody should journal, you know? I, I feel like everybody should be involved in the arts in some way, shape, or form because the world's a terrible, shitty place. And if you can't find happiness and, or beauty in it, then you're just going to die. So, Why do you uh, think it made you a better leader? Made me more compassionate. Made me, uh, once you can open up, and be on like a ground level with your uh with your soldiers i feel like they're gonna trust you more you're not just a robot you're not just a man behind the uniform they can see who you are as a person and like once my guys started stop seeing me as you know fucking staff sergeant chuckle fuck you know they saw me as like oh fucking buck writer you know he writes poetry so that's pretty awesome you know he paints and you know does photography on the side it's less intimidating and if you take a passion in their lives, I mean, I talk about leadership all day, like my personal leadership style, but like, I feel like it's really simple to be a good leader. Just put your guys first and care about the problems and then they'll follow you through the hell and back. And once I was, they saw me as not just a, you know, a uniform, makes them listen better. Always helped me. Was there a moment that that clicked for you or was it just something that was developed over time that you kind of gradually showed more of your interests and your kind of personal personality, I guess. Uh, yeah, definitely, man. I mean, I became an NCO when I was 20 years old and I probably had no business being in charge of anybody at 20 years old. So, I mean, it just kind of, I don't know, just like with anything, you're going to learn how to be better at your job. And like the military is one of those hard things, especially once you start climbing the ranks, you have to be, you have to see it more than a job, but you still not take it too seriously. It's like this whole weird like dance you have to do with being like an NCO, especially in the combat arms, especially in the infantry. Um, I just kind of picked it up and I, I tried trial and error, tr saw what worked, saw what didn't work, you know, and it's just a good, happy balance. You Sometimes you have to bring the hammer down. Sometimes you have to be a little bit more compassionate. Sometimes you have to tell a dude to shut the fuck up. Your problems aren't that fucking bad, man. <laughs> like, it's being a leader, especially in the military at such a young age is the hardest job to put on a man. But I think it's the most growth you can put into a single, you know, human being ever in the world. You said that there's things that didn't work. Any particular examples of trials or things that you have tried different leadership styles that just have like totally crashed and burned? Um, yeah, that was a pretty violent NCO. When I first uh, became an NCO, I was a corporal. So being a corporal uh, in like a reconnaissance uh, platoon, uh, you're kind of, especially back in that day, this was uh, 2014, 2015, when I was a corporal. Uh, you're expected, you were expected to perform, you're expected to be a bulldog. I was told by multiple NCOs that if, if I see somebody doing something wrong, and you didn't fuck them up for it, I'm going to fuck you up. So then I was like, all right, well, I got to be an asshole. So then like that kind of became my personality. And I was like known as like the hard NCO, you know, like, oh, don't go, don't deal with Corporal Buck. Like he'll fuck you up there. I was like yelling all the time. And then like, but then I just grew up, you know, like I got demoted a couple times, you know, got in fist fights with some of my Joes, got in fist fights with my leadership. Uh, and then I just grew up and I realized I didn't want to do that anymore. And then I just, uh, it made me a better leader. And I realized that it wasn't the right answer and it never was the right answer. So, you're not always going to be proud of what you did when you were in the military. And I'm not proud of everything. I'm not proud of the guy I was the whole time. But I also did it for going on 10 years now. I feel like uh, if you sit back and tell everybody you were the best soldier in the world, then you're probably the biggest asshole in the world. <laughs> I was not a good soldier. I was not the model soldier. But... I can look back and I still have a relationship for the dudes I serve with. And that's all that matters to me. It's interesting that you pitch, maybe it's just the people and like the, the relationships with the people that you had in such a positive light, because earlier you made a comment about how your time in the service, your badges and awards or whatever, it just like, doesn't mean shit to you. Where is the line drawn between those things? Do you think? Well, like I said earlier, it's like a good, happy balance, you know? Um, 
Should you strive out to make accomplishments in the military? 100%. Should you strive to maybe go collect that jump wings, air assault wings, you know, mountain badge, CIB? 100%. Like, I feel like, because like in the military, you wear your resume on your chest. So I feel like you have to accomplish something, but does it make you a bad NCO if you have nothing? No. It's just a, if you do it, great. If you make it your identity, you're a fucking idiot. The color of your hat, the tabs you got, and the freaking awards you've earned mean absolutely jack fuck once you hang it up. And the only thing that's ever going to matter is when you get out and you hang that uniform up for the last time, if you can make a phone call to somebody you serve with and they answer the phone. That's it. That's all it's about. It's just a job. If you do it well, cool. If you're a bad soldier, cool. Do people like you and get along with you? Great. Why is that so hard for people to separate? Like just seeing it as a job. Uh, I mean, well, one, uh, it's an indoctrination process. It's designed to be that way. Most people, especially in the combat arms, come from impoverished areas. It's their first accomplishment ever in their life. Uh, The American society likes to put, uh, you know, American service members up on a giant pedestal. You're paid pretty decently for a little bit of work you do. It's a lot of struggles. You get camaraderie through that. And everybody's going to shake your hand when you walk down the street in, you know, small town USA. So it's hard for you to let that go. It's hard for people to look at it then more than what it is. And I don't think these things will ever leave you. But I'm definitely not going to walk around and say, once a soldier, always a soldier. Or once a you know sailor, always a sailor. Or once a Marine, always a Marine. Because it's not true. You know? it's You're going to have to move on. If you don't adapt, you're going to die. Which is contradictory of things I've said in the past. In my, in my first book, I said, you know, to establish roots is to die. You know? You know? And, uh, but I don't know. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't contradict that. <laughs> but, uh, I guess to establish roots in any set thing and die on that hill is kind of, I feel like you just have to have constant growth. And I don't see holding on to your military service as constant growth. I see it as uh, staying in your ways. And it's really hard, especially with social media, especially in the veteran community, because social media is kind of curated to what people, what the algorithm thinks you're going to like. So if you like a couple of military posts, then all you're going to see on your feed is, you know, nods and guns and special operations and all this cool shit and like reality that's just separating that's just bridging the gap farther and farther from you and i've noticed a lot of dudes that get out they just don't have hobbies if your hobbies are guns and you like guns cool but i just don't see that as a hobby personally yeah (laughs) some slight side commentary on building a social media following in 2023 post a bunch of videos and nvgs and uh some aerosol like paratroopers uh videos people jumping out of planes and you've got a hundred thousand followers so uh Yeah. yeah people people really dig that stuff but yeah it it's extraordinarily difficult because I, I know personally, I tried to like really walk away from my service when I got out. And I'm interested to see if your feelings change over the coming years of like getting out and how that kind of transition process will be. And if you change your mind about that, I know I certainly did. I really didn't want to be like the vet bro and tried to like walk <laughs> away from it and do that, that whole thing. But I found myself like, here I am like hosting this podcast, like talking to military folks, hopefully about, I tell people, I I didn't think that we would get too hung up on it, but there are some people I tell before we come on, I'm like, this is not a fucking reminiscing podcast. (laughs) Like there's, there's plenty of those shows or you can just go like swap war stories and whatever, do that whole thing. But this is about kind of building your life outside of service, because I think that it's not done enough. Yeah, Um, 100%. it's good to kind of like acknowledge where you came from and especially, um, you know, joining very young when that's all, you know, like that's, and especially if you have like any sort of accomplishments while you're in, like, that's what you've got to cling to. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Like I'm not going to lie. Do I have plaques and, you know, things hanging on my wall of like things I've done in my service? 100%. Am I proud of it? Yeah. But I'm just not going to like go to some random motherfucker in a, 
bar in New York City and be like, hey, so do you know I was a paratrooper? You know what that is? Like, no, I'm not going to do that. You got to find a common ground with anybody. I'm not saying that being in the veteran community and being involved in other veteran organizations is one of the greatest things I've done because I was very against it and I didn't want to be a part of it. I didn't want to sit around and swap war stories. I didn't want to talk to other veterans just because I was tired of fucking hearing it. And, but I am involved in the PB Abate. I am really involved in PB Abate. It's probably the only veteran organization I'm really involved in, but because I've seen what it's done and I've seen how it helps people and they do things in a different light that brings hobbies, other uh, hobbies into this community and shows them something else to work on. Like with book club, I'm super involved in book club. I do go to book club meetings all the time with them on virtual stuff. And all the books am I interested in? No. But when we talk about an interesting book and I get to like blab on for like, you know, about what I like about books and I get to show someone a different light of literature, I love that. And even when I get to see somebody who probably wouldn't be into books, but they're reading a book because it's on like military service and stuff like that, that's still a good thing. You should be involved in veteran communities. You should join the VFW. You should join the American Legion because those things are around for a reason. You're going to have to stay plugged in the veteran community no matter what, because it was such a big pivotal point of our lives. Will I probably ever change my ways about how I look at it? Probably not. I think I was just in too long to really uh, warp how I've changed things at this age of my life. Uh, but I'm a member of the VFW uh, in Savannah, Georgia. I'm a member of PB Abate Book Club and a writer for Dead Reckoning Collective. And that's, I think it's a good thing to do. And I think I helped get able to help some people with it. From the people who have gotten out and seem to have really like taken hold in their life after service, one of the most common threads that I tend to see is some sense of ongoing community with other vets around other things. Like you said, book club, writing, other activities. You're around other people that you kind of have a common background with. And um, I, a lot of different veteran service organizations kind of go about it different ways. But I, I tend to agree with what you're saying on the, the community community driven exercises. Yeah. And, and you, it's not, it doesn't have to be a veteran thing. I feel like everybody joined for some sense of service. Did I join because I wanted to serve my country? Not really. I was poor and I didn't really have a lot of options. And I was like, well, I guess going to war sounds like a really cool adventure. You know, getting in a gunfight might be badass. And that's kind of why I joined. But then the day, like there is a sense of service behind it. Even if I didn't develop, if I didn't go in with that sense of service, I developed a sense of service while I was in when I became a leader. And I was like, responsible for other motherfuckers lives you know that's a massive thing to take on you don't have to read a fucking jocko book to understand the importance of fucking leadership do i think leadership books are lame 100 you shouldn't have a grown man trying to tell you how to be a leader that that shit's fucking weird go get involved in a club and like just be a leader you know i, I think it's just the new generation of self-help books and i think that shit's absolutely dumb but um freaking <laughs> you know I, and if you can't get involved in a veteran organization man go help out at the dog shelter you know how many veterans i meet at the dog shelter Tons. You know how many veterans I meet just helping out at freaking, you know, the homeless shelter? A lot more than you'd think. And they're just, I think those are the best veterans out there because they're the quiet service member. And that is a super proud thing to be. And I think people have taken or not really looked at how important those people are. You know, it's all special operations, cool guy, this or that, fucking fog, goon, whatever the fuck bullshit. And it's fucking lame because they're just going to, those people just want to take your money and run and then make fun of you. <laughs> so don't fucking listen to those guys. What do you think is the, the obsession about that? Is it just a lot of, and I mean, I would put myself in this category too. Like that's, I had dreams of being that person at one point in my life too. Like I, Oh, every, every guy has, you know, it's the coolest thing in the world. You know? Yeah. Other than being a fighter pilot, that's the coolest job in the military, and I want everybody to know that. <laughs> if you want to know more about me, just read my books. You'll probably figure it out by then, you know? <laughs> right. Well, and that's the beauty of uh, people that have, like, uh, and are open and publish their work, whether it be through a book, whether they write online, blog, whatever, is you really get to see an interesting part of people that um, you wouldn't otherwise 
and kind of a little bit dangerous. And sometimes it's odd to think about all of your information and stuff being publicly available like that. Yeah. But I don't know, kind of the the nature of the game in today's social media world. Yeah, and it kind of sucks because like one thing I really the thing I probably hate the most about the veteran culture is how quick veterans are to attack other veterans. Like there's nothing that pisses a veteran off more than seeing another veteran successful. Like what do you mean? Oh, dude, freaking. So it's really and I'm not saying it's a I'm not saying it's a bad thing. So there's tons of there's hundreds of special forces businesses out there now. But every single single every time like one of those businesses gets popular, nobody has a single good thing to say about the guy. Is that guy a bad guy? Yeah, probably. The things I've heard about him sound pretty fucking bad. But I mean, I don't know a lot of true perfect service members in my life. And I know eventually if I ever make it a little bit more popular, people are probably gonna dig some skeletons out of my closet. But I'm like, fuck, man. Like it's really it's really surprising how like it's only the veterans that really wanna be like, oh yeah. Oh, this guy's like selling a coffee company. Like Black Rifle Coffee is a great example. Um, everybody loved Black Rifle Coffee when they first came out. Everybody absolutely loved them. Do I drink their coffee? No, I'm cheap. I buy fucking like Maxwell House. Do I have a lot of friends that work there? Yeah, 100%. But uh, ever since like a little a whiff of the air, if something goes wrong at like Black Rifle Coffee, it's over every meme page, over every veteran page. And it's like, yeah, fuck them. Black Rifle Coffee's stupid. They're dumb. And I was like, yeah, well, can you name another organization that employs that many veterans? No, you can't. Can you uh, name an organization that hires that many veteran spouses? No, you can't. Can you name an organization that's probably brought as much light to veteran issues? No, you can't. Uh, but you're real quick to try to get your VA rating through Hunter 7, even though Black Rifle Coffee gets a lot of money through them. You're real quick to fucking say a lot of things about them, but you've probably benefited from them being a little bit more popular and bringing up veteran issues. Veterans are cunts, you know, because they're just real bastards. And I kind of fucking hate it. And I really wish we would just help each other out a little bit more. And I've been guilty of it. Do I kind of fucking go down the tangent on some things sometimes and talk shit about other veterans? Yeah. Uh, am I right for it? No. Am I perfect? No. I'm just a fucking writer. I'm not a fucking priest. So, but I'll tell you what, if any of my guys ever need something, anybody I ever served with, I will fucking help them out no matter what because i can't save everybody but i can help the dudes i care about i think that it is you know like you said anything that goes wrong and it's very quick to like jump down their throats i do admire what those guys have built and are putting together i really hope that in like the coming decade that you were talking about the veteran writing community being at kind of a turning point what I hope we're at the turning point for as kind of like a community is like doing some bigger things that are beyond coffee and like t-shirt companies <laughs> and like make a little bit of a bigger impact. And I, I, I and that's not to bag on Black Rifle. Like yeah, they're, it's not. It, like, and especially they just went public. Well, you gotta like call they're a, a great company. Yeah. Um, but like, let's get out there and like make some wakes and other things. Um, and I hope that we can pour gas on the fire for some of other veteran started businesses and, and some, see some people make it big. Yeah. And I want that too. I, do I see it actually ever happening? Probably not just because successful veterans and other ventures and avenues don't really bring up their service too much. Um, I don't know if that's by design or, you know, it just helps them out professionally, but I mean, one thing. T-shirts are a pretty profitable fucking business. You can buy and print a T-shirt for $3 and then turn around and sell that motherfucker for $30. I know this because I started a business. <laughs> and I know what profit margins and fucking marketing and all this other dumb shit I didn't understand earlier about. Um, so it's And coffee beans are kind of cheap to buy. The pretty uh, roaster's pretty cheap to buy. So profit margins are fucking huge. And I've seen other veteran companies like uh, One More Wave, great company, makes surfboards, you know, gets veterans out there surfing. Are they going to make an absolute shit ton of money? Probably not. But can you at least make a living doing it? Yeah, probably. Vet Rep Theater, really great veteran organization. I work with them a lot. Uh, they're involved in like theater with veteran arts. Are they going to be as successful as Black Rifle Coffee? God, I wish they would. But is it going to happen? No, because it's marketing and fucking sales and shit I don't even understand. I just don't, 
I don't think we'll ever have a big veteran voice come from like, you know, the massive entertainment department that is out there. You know, Adam Driver is probably never going to come out like be a be on Black Rifle Coffee's <laughs> social media or anything like that. And, like trying to get. I mean, he does donate a lot of money to like uh, you know helping veterans get in like you know acting and stuff like that. But he's ever going to publicly out there like go on an interview and say it? Probably not. It's just mm-hmm. not cool. The American people don't give a shit anymore. One so. Yeah. Well, and it's it's interesting to see the changing face of media, like probably the biggest uh, maybe military person, Jocko, you mentioned him earlier or whatever. But it's funny that all of that like military talk is like followed by so many non-military people yeah. like that, that. It's like kind of almost a completely different audience than what you think it would be. Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, it's like. I, I don't explain I can't I can't say it in a politically correct way. So it's I'll just fucking send it. Uh honestly it's just a bunch of dudes that really have inadequate feelings about themselves and feel like if they can get kinda involved in a tough culture that it'll make them tough and they don't realize that they could just be tough by probably being a good family man and you know, going out and doing some hard labor. And is that for everybody? No. Do I think you need to pay a dude two thousand dollars to go through a freaking a weekend course and get hazed to be a man. Probably fucking not. That's kind of weird to me. <laughs> Maybe just uh, go help out your local Boy Scout troop or something, man. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think it becomes more what I think people don't realize is you don't, you don't gain respect by talking about something. You get it by doing something. And I think that yeah. that's, uh, I have a ton of respect for what Jocko's built and like, Oh yeah, this crazy media empire, and it's because he's he's done that thing already. He was already living those things, and then there are a lot of people that kind of see like, oh, maybe if I just like start talking about all these things and saying all these things, then I will kind of become that. And I get the whole line of thinking about like kind of bring that. If you say it, you'll become it, sort of idea. But say it to yourself, uh, or be doing it on your own, and then kind of come back and talk about it. Yeah, and even if, like, I don't personally like or give a shit what they're doing, can I say that they probably brought a little bit more light to at least one person about veteran issues? 100%. And that's a good thing. I don't have to like everything for it to be a good thing. I'm not probably a great judge of character on stuff. So <laughs> I don't think a lot of people should really listen to much of what I have to say. Buy my books, and if you like them, cool. But, you know, I'm not a fucking philosopher, and I'm not a self-help guy. Mm-hmm. You were mentioning before we started recording to me that you have a couple other projects in the works right now. I'd love to hear about you mentioned a novel, you mentioned another poetry book. What all are you working on? And uh, we also got to talk about Dirtbag too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to see, I mean, I could, I could, we could either do this uh, a me podcast or I could have uh, my partner come on and do Dirtbag later down the road, but I'll bring it up because I like Dirtbag is obviously a massive passion for me. But yeah, uh, yeah so. Yeah, whatever. I'll just fucking let it ride. Levi, Levi's the guy who runs Dirtbag Magazine with me. Uh, me and him met at a PB Abate event. Uh, really talented writer, really talented guy, uh, really talented photographer. Um, and he just kind of had the same dream I did. I was, I was kind of an independent journalist for a while. I was writing articles here and there, but I was finding that I couldn't really get a lot of articles published other than like veteran uh, media outlets which are very confined to certain subjects. Um, you basically have to write some clickbait articles about things you don't really give a shit about. Like, what's your opinion on this military movie? Like, this unknown veteran. Uh, which I've written some of those articles, I will say. But, uh, you know, you got to make, make some money every now and then. But the way I saw it is that I can either complain about it or do something about it. So in a fit of spite and anger, I learned how to build a mag- build build a website, filed for an LLC, and started my own magazine called Dirtbag Magazine. And uh, we're not very active because uh, it's ran by two people. Uh, but the things we do bring to the table when we do do something, we're going to do it all the way. We are working right now to get uh, two journalists into Syria right now, and uh, I'm not going to say their names or anything like that because I don't want them to get like murdered. Uh, uh, 
but we are going to probably have two journalists working independently and we're going to get them some press passes and get them some like uh, some paperwork to get uh, into Syria to do some more corresponding. Uh, we personally are going to be are working on trying to get Antarctica in January 2024 to cover uh, the ethics of Antarctica tourism. And we're probably going to write some other uh, articles like music based. That's what we're real big love is music. Uh, but we're basically just going to do stuff that no one else is going to do. And we're going to do it with half the funding uh, that anyone else is going to do. Because right now, me and Levi self-fund this thing. We make absolutely zero profit off this whole business. And we're going to continue to keep it that way because I feel like it's going to make it a lot more authentic. We're essentially trying to be a mixture between uh, Vice News and Rolling Stone. We're going to cover bands that you're not going to know about, and we're going to go places you probably never thought to go. And we're just going to tell a story. We're eventually going to probably make some documentaries. You said at the beginning of starting to talk about it that you guys both have the same dream. What is that? To be an artist that's not a veteran artist, but to just be an artist. Levi also is a veteran. He's also on active duty. He's uh, probably the few... 23-year-old Marines I know with a combat action ribbon. And you know what? Rarely ever talks about it. He's a photographer and he's a very talented photographer. And when I met him, I knew we clicked on a really personal level. I knew he believed the same things I did, that to make a bigger impact in the world is to not be a veteran artist, but to be an artist who just so happens to be a veteran. And that's what we're bringing to the table. I really like that. Well, and that's kind of been an underlying theme in a lot of the things that you're talking about today is this whole idea of just producing things and not writing on past actions and because it, at the end of the day, doesn't really mean anything and it can be good in and of itself, not yeah. just, oh, it's good for being a veteran or whatever. Yeah, because I turned out when Dirtbag first came out, I turned down a lot of articles and I still turn down a lot of articles I get. Because I'm not going to publish a veteran article. If you want to write veteran articles, you can go write for Havoc Journal, Lethal Minds, Black Rival Coffee. There's tons of outlets out there that will probably make you more money. But if you want to, if you want to be anybody and you want to push the boundaries and go do something worthwhile and tell an actual story, then you could come write for Dirtbag. We won't pay you a lot, but we'll give you something, I guess. <laughs> you know, we don't have a lot of money. I'll say that again. We do not have a lot of money. <laughs> You'll get the joy and pleasure of being published, and that'll be about it. Yeah. It's kind of a cool side project for me and Levi. And we do have some really cool – we do have some really big-name writers who are involved with it, especially with our second issue that's coming out in uh, February. Hopefully it comes out in February. We're really bad. We're not really organized, so it kind of makes it fun. Um, but, yeah, and I feel, I've seen a lot of, like, big-name veteran writers really take to this because they're like, dude, I'm so fucking tired of writing about military stuff. I can't do it anymore. So the culture is changing, especially in the veteran artist world. And I want to be able to offer an opportunity for anyone to come write about whatever the hell they want. And you might not get published by a big magazine, but we will help you build a resume. We're not in place, but we're a fucking, we're a stepping stone, hopefully to somewhere bigger. I'll be sure to include links to that in the show notes, as well as a couple other links to your books and stuff. Yeah. But in the day, I'm probably going to make my money off writing. So <laughs> just writing books because I like writing books. And I'm never going to stop being a writer. I do have a new book coming out this year, so that'll be good. I might I might have two out this year. I'm just We're just going to see how it goes. It's how the writing world is. See how much writing you get done on your, after your surgery. You, well, the problem with me is that like I work, I work on multiple projects at one time. This is how my brain works. I usually write at least two books at the same time. Um, so I wrote, I was already working on Demons of the Taillights when I was working on Silverman's Thoughts. Um, and I started working on short story collection really heavily when I was working on Silverman's Thoughts. Um, my first short story I ever wrote, I wrote when Silverman's Thoughts wasn't even finished, you know, and I wanted to make it a collection. I'm taking my time with the collection because it's not my main project. It's not my main focus. It's just something I work on in the background. You know, when I'm tired of working on my novel, which I'm working on. I'll go and work on, you know, my short stories. It's a good little break and it keeps, keeps the gears winding and it makes me a better writer. I feel like, but yeah, Demons of the Taillights will be out this year. It'll be a really, it'll be something different. It'll be, there's, there are some war poems in there for you guys that fucking like that shit. Um, so you could feel good about that. Um, 
now, Megan. <laughs> uh, but there are, uh, it's, I've written some original songs in there. Uh, I have some original artwork in there. Um, it's just going to be, it's, it's going to be something different. And I hope that people enjoy it for what it actually is and see it, it for what it is and not just think it's Sober Men's Thoughts part two. So <laughs> I have a couple closing questions for you yeah. today. The first two come from Sober Man's Thoughts. And I wanted to just uh, kind of ask you to expand on them a little bit more. The first one is a line or the first two lines of a Sober Man's Thoughts. I was too busy living the life to ever actually write it. And it got me wondering and thinking about whether what we should be optimizing for, should we be optimizing to live or to document? And because I, I think that you've probably thought a little bit about that. Yeah, that's actually a, that's a line I remember writing, actually. So you're good on that one. Uh, no. So basically, Sermon's Thoughts, I chose it for the title for a certain reason. Because even if Sermon's Thoughts didn't have a lot of thought behind why it came out, I still wanted to have a message behind it all. And obviously, it's a really personal book for me. Um, you know, I dedicated it to uh, my fiance who passed away uh, back in 2014. Uh, but yeah, basically with that line, I really wanted people to stop. And what I meant with that is I, I was too busy living my life to actually ever write it because I was just living it. I was living in the moment. I didn't think past the next day let alone the next sentence. I, the, I wrote most of this stuff. I would jobble, I would scribble a couple lines down and it would go on my phone or like go in a notepad somewhere and I just keep living life. There's very, it was very rare for me to sit down and actually stop what I'm, I'm never going to stop and like say like, hold, hold on, man, let me write this down real quick. Like, cause I'm not going to do that. I'd rather go out and experience life than sit in my house all day and write. Do I have to do that? 100%. It's become a job now. I'm going to have to sit down and write, but I feel like the only thing to make anybody better from any trauma is to actually go out there and experience life to the fullest. I've talked to college classes before where they asked me, what do you think the best thing to be a writer is? And I, said, well, I told them to drop out of college and go out and live a, live a story. Because if you want to write a story, you have to live a story first. Every story ever written, whether it be fiction or nonfiction, is obviously based off of somebody's life, especially fiction. There's no... There is more truth in fiction than, than, you know, anything else, obviously, but there's, it has some tangibility in there. And if you really want to write a great story, you have to first go out there and experience it because people are going to tell if you're full of shit. And that's kind of what that line really means to me. The second one is uh, another line from Soberman's Thoughts. Uh, no solution was ever found in the bottle of self-pity. Yeah. You kind of take that and expand on it a little bit, maybe. Yeah. So, obviously, after uh, you know my fiance passing away, it really uh, really fucked me up. You know, <laughs> and, uh, it's still something I deal with to this day. It's a hard thing to go through when you're 20 years old. It's a really hard thing to go through. It's probably one of the hardest things you'll ever go through in your entire life. It's definitely harder than going to war. It's definitely harder than killing a man. It's having something that you love so much that it's ripped away from you and you can't change it. So I had a choice. I was either going to sit down and suffer for the rest of my life and be depressed about it, or I was going to do something about it, which is kind of a big thing about who I am. I'm going to, if there's a problem and I can physically solve it, I'm going to try to solve it. And there's few problems out there that you can't solve. One of them, you can't bring the dead back, but you can live a life worth two people. So I don't think anything of your problems are ever going to be solved by just sitting around and wallowing about them. You could, you can, you could change your life in a single day by changing the way you live it. The last question you mentioned in another interview that your writing process typically revolves around writing the first chapter and then writing the, the last chapter and then filling the ends in between. If you were to, give us some commentary on the first chapter of your life and the last chapter of it. What do you think that you would say? Hmm. Well, my first chapter in my life is probably, you know, your upbringing. I feel like people are a product of the environment they grew up in. Departed taught me that, stole that line from there. And <laughs> But uh, you're definitely, you're always going to be 
who you are when you were a child. If you're interested in books and you're interested in art, you're probably going to be interested in that when you're an adult. But I feel like, I hate to say this because I've heard it said before and I didn't like it then, but it does have some bit of truth in it. If you go through some trauma when you're a young adult or a kid, I feel like it really does make you a better person. Um, because you're going to go through trauma any time in your life. It's going to happen. You're going to lose people. Things are going to happen to you. But if you do it young enough in an early age, it can really make you a better person and make you self-reflect and really just be more compassionate as a human being. I don't know the way or how it's ever going to take you, but it can make you. I didn't have the best childhood. I didn't have the easiest upbringing. I didn't, the chips were stacked against me from day one, but I made the best out of it no matter what. And now I'm on fucking podcasts talking about my weird contorted ideas of how I look at life. In the last chapter of my life, I'll probably be uh, just an old man who makes a write shitty poetry books. I don't know. Freaking, I don't really care. If I can, I don't know if I'll ever get married. I don't know if I'll ever have kids. But I do know that I'll leave behind at least a dozen books for people to read. And that's okay with me. Awesome. Buck, I really appreciate you sharing and coming on and chatting with me today. The last and actual non, the last final question, actually, uh, not a personal one, though. How can myself and or anybody listening be useful to you? Be useful to me? Buy my books, please. (laughs) Buy my books and then most importantly, buy my Buy a couple books out there. Uh, you can buy Eddie Black's books. Uh, they're sold wherever uh, books are really sold. Buy Douglas Hoover's books. Support uh, Dead Reckoning Collective because they keep the lights on. Uh, support Amy Sexauer. She's a really talented author. Support any of the authors at uh, Dead Reckoning Collective. And uh, obviously support this podcast and support any veteran artist you can find. And then just go be a good human being and then we'll be okay. Oh, and awesome. Dirtbag Mag. Okay. <laughs> oh, and Dirtbag. <laughs> Awesome. Man, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. Yeah, no worries, bro.